that I know. I love it. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ we are made complete. That because of his coming into the world, his death and resurrection, we are alive in him, that we're forgiven in him, we are made righteous in him. We thank you that we are safe and secure in his love until that day that you call us home. Our hearts are filled with such joy and hope because of that. Thank you, Father. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's good to be back with you this morning. We um, enjoyed our trip to the Midwest last weekend for a family wedding. We arranged our trip through Minneapolis. And uh, normally that works pretty well because it's a great airport there, but during the spring season, you never quite know what the weather is going to be in Minneapolis, especially in late March, early April. We were watching a storm develop in the Midwest before we even left. We took off from, from San Jose. Pilot told us how long the flight was going to be, three hours, blah, 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 whatever it is. And it all looked great until about an hour out of Minneapolis. And he came on and said, well, folks, I've got some bad news. Now, you never like to hear a pilot say, we've got some bad news, right? He said, while we've been flying, the situation in, uh, in Minneapolis has deteriorated rapidly. Right now, they've closed the runways except for one of them. It doesn't have the best of the avionics on it, and so they're slow in landing. We're going to be in a holding pattern out here in western Minnesota for a while. He said, we've got 50 minutes of, of fuel to play with. <laughs> now, my wife heard him say, we've got 50 minutes of fuel. That wasn't quite what he said. He said, we've got 50 minutes that we can circle, and then we're going to have to go to our alternate destination, which is Bismarck, North Dakota. <laughs> you don't want to land in Bismarck, North Dakota. Mm -mm. So we began this process. You've all been through this. It's nothing new. He updated us from time to time, but about 40 minutes into that 50-minute window, he came back on and said, well, folks, here's some good news. He said there were lots of airplanes in front of us doing the same thing we were doing, but they were lower on fuel than we were. They've all gone to their alternate destination, which opens up the way for us to potentially get in. And sure enough, within 10 minutes, we were on the ground. But we landed on the ground about the same time our flight to Kansas City was supposed to leave. However, there's a storm, remember? And so guess what? That flight is exactly by two hours. Time to stroll through that huge airport in Minneapolis, get some dinner, stroll to our gate, and we did that. And we sat down about 8.30, and it said, flight's going to leave at 9.05, but there's nobody at the gate. <coughs> it wasn't long before it said 9.30. And then it said 10.05. And then it said 10.30. And I'm beginning to look at my watch. We've got an hour and a half flight ahead of us. And about 10.30, somebody showed up at the gate and they said, well, folks, the good news is that the crew that's taking you to Kansas City has just arrived from North Dakota. <laughs> and they're at the other end of the airport. As soon as they can walk here, then we will take off. So sure enough, by 11 o'clock or a little after, we were on the airplane. And the pilot came on and she said, yes, she said, 
Uh, we're going to uh, take a little time getting out tonight because we've got to de-ice. Never good news. <laughs> we're going to have to de-ice, <clears throat> but uh, it should put us about 20 minutes behind. So we're looking at our clocks, and 11.20 comes and goes, 11.30, 11.45. Finally, at 12 o'clock, we're still sitting at the gate. She came on and said, well, folks, I guess you didn't hear me make the announcement, and we didn't, <laughs> that they were changing a tire on the airplane out there in this blizzard. <laughs> and so it's taken us a little longer to go get away from the gate, but we're going now. And so we left the gate. We inched, almost literally inched out to where they were doing the de-icing. Well, this snow has come down as frozen Elmer's glue. It will not come off the airplane. It's taking each airplane 30 minutes to be de-iced. And so by the time we took off, it was after 2 o'clock in the morning. Got into Kansas City about 3.30. But the good news <laughs> is that the hotel didn't charge us for that first night because we were so late getting there. But it, it was a hard start to the weekend, but it was a great weekend being with family. All of our kids and grandkids were there. And, and uh, it was the son of my sister who passed away a year ago. And so it was a very tender and, and precious time to be together as a family and sharing that wedding. Uh, thank you, Pastor Dave, for filling in last week so capably and talking about the Lord's Prayer. I appreciate your doing that. We are going to turn in our Bibles this morning back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where we pick up our text in verse 9. This is where we left off the last time we were together. I'm going to lump some paragraphs together, and I've entitled the message this morning, The Hard Side of Holiness. The Hard Side of Holiness. Have you heard of Bodine Bakery in San Francisco? They're the ones who make the original San Francisco sourdough French bread. Actually, they began their baking operation in 1846. I was watching a program on yeast a few weeks ago on one of the cable channels, and they talked about the bakery there. And they said that, as you know, they, they, they use genuine yeast, not Fleischmann's or one of these packaged yeasts, but they actually use a yeast dough, a mother dough, that goes all the way back into the 1860s. So there is a genetic connection between the bread you're eating today and the bread the people have eaten for the last 150 years from Bodine Bakery. It's great bread. You know, yeast is, is not a chemical. Yeast is a living organism. You knew that, didn't you? It's of the kingdom of fungi. Doesn't that make you feel good about eating bread? Yeasted bread? Of the kingdom of fungi. Sounds like some African country, doesn't it? Paul compares yeast to sin. He says a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough in verse 6. Now he's going to pick up on that theme of the yeast and the dough and the necessity of living holy lives. Warren Wiersbe finds four similarities between yeast and sin. Number one, and this is in your notes, you may want to follow that and fill in the blanks. It may be small, but it's potent. It may be small, but it's potent. Just like arsenic is small, but it's very potent. Yeast is the same way. Secondly, it works secretly. You can't see it. Sin is the same way in our lives. We can't see it necessarily, but it's at work. 
Third, it creates corruption. It always does. Yeast does its work through corruption. Sin corrupts everyone it touches and everything it touches. Third, it spreads. A little bit of yeast spreads throughout the whole loaf. Much like a malignant cancer will spread if it's not dealt with. And that's why Paul wrote this letter. He was concerned that their attitude of tolerance toward what God said was wrong was going to harm them as God's family and that the church's vitality would be destroyed. Already, he says, the name of Christ was being disgraced in Corinth because of their attitude about the wrong behavior of their member who was in a sinful lifestyle. And what did the Corinthians think about this man? Well, they were broad-minded about it. They didn't see anything particularly wrong. They were oblivious to the shame that embracing this man brought to their church. It reminds me of the denomination today that has as its little slogan, open hearts, open minds, open doors. It sounds wonderful on the surface, but what they mean by open minds is being tolerant towards what God calls wrong. Tolerance of what God calls wrong is never a virtue. It's actually self-condemnation. Paul's appeal is that God's family, those for whom the Passover lamb, Jesus, had been sacrificed, that they would forsake the yeast, the attitudes of sinfulness that had overtaken them and return to holy living. That's why he uses the analogy in the early text here uh, that we studied last time. He says, keep the feast with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. You know, holiness is vital for us as God's children who live in a pagan world just like the Corinthians did. A world that is driven by its lust for pleasure, for possession, for power, and prestige. But Paul calls these believers to the hard side of holiness. Now, our Father is holy. Our Father is holy, and He tells us, His family, to live in the world without becoming like it. We are to live in the world without becoming like the world. We have a hard time making that distinction at points. Because, you see, the hard side of holiness gets into the cracks and the closets of our lives, into those places that are out of sight and invisible. The hard side of holiness involves the decisions we have to make that are painful, that constrain the natural desires that we have, that really mark us out in the world as being different from others. The hard side of holiness involves things like who we hang out with, getting reparation for wrongs that are done to us, 
and choosing to act in ways that may be contrary to the learned patterns of our past lives. The hard side of holiness. We can't justify continuing in our past patterns by simply saying, that's the way I am, that's my nature. Our Father says, look, I am holy, I want you to be holy. I want you to be transformed. I want to change you. That's what this text is about. Our text provides guidance for living in a pagan world. Now let's take a look at the first paragraph. It begins in chapter 5 and verse 9. He says, I've written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this what? This world. He says, but now I am writing, now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. <coughs> with such a man, no, not even to eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, but you expel the wicked man from among you. The first thing that Paul says, and I'm going to sum up these paragraphs, is this. Be careful of your associations. Be careful of your associations. Now, Paul had already addressed this, <coughs> he says, in a previous letter. It's a letter we don't have. It was not inspired by the Holy Spirit and has not been preserved for us. But Paul had written them once before. And he had told them to be careful of their associations. What Paul had said was, do not associate with sexually immoral people. This was an important word for Corinth. Because we've already talked about how broad immorality had been entrenched into that city. Paul says, don't get mixed up with immoral people. Paul uses this term uh, twice here in this text, and then he uses it again in 2 Thessalonians, where he says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take, him, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. <clears throat> now, the Corinthians had misunderstood what Paul meant in the first letter. They thought that he had meant cutting off everybody in the world who lives immorally. And yet at the same time, they had retained as a member of their church a man who was living in gross immorality. You can imagine how that looked to the pagans who were watching them. And so a clarification is needed. What does it mean? What does Paul mean when he says, keep away from, don't associate with immoral people? Well, Paul clarifies it by saying, number one, separation is not isolation from the world. He says that would mean leaving the world itself. You can't do that. How would you fulfill the Great Commission? That would actually mean not being like Jesus because he came into the world. And he actually associated with sinners. Separation is not isolation from the world. But secondly, he says, separation is 
and expectation within God's family. Paul then goes on to list six specific sins or lifestyles that are of concern to him as he thinks about this. <clears throat> he says these are lifestyles that should not be within the family of God. He says, I expect you to keep away from people who call themselves Christians and who are involved in the lifestyle of immorality. We've talked about that. It means sexual looseness. Or greed. Those who are living just to have more things in life. That's their bottom line. Stay away from those who claim to be Christians and who are involved in idolatry or in gossip. The word gossip here is the word that means abusive language. It means to speak harshly to others, to be verbally abusive. He says drunkards, those who are given to addiction, whether it be alcohol or drugs, any other kind of intoxicant, there's a person who is characterized by that, stay away from them. He says if there's someone who claims to be a part of the family and who lives a lifestyle of fraud, who plunders other people, who scams people, who's a swindler, stay away from that person. He says don't even eat with a professing believer who lives that way. I want to tell you something, that is the hard side of holiness. That's hard for us to do, particularly if we have within our circle of friends somebody who's living like this. Remember, we're not talking about somebody in the world. We're talking about somebody in the church, <clears throat> somebody who's a professing believer. The NIV has a helpful note. I think you have it there in your, your notes. I've copied it for you. Calling oneself a Christian while continuing to live an immoral life is reprehensible and degrading and gives a false testimony to Christ. If the true Christian has intimate association with someone who does this, the non-Christian world may assume that the church approves such immoral, ungodly living, and thus the name of Christ would be dishonored. This is Paul's concern. He says, God is going to judge the world, those who are outside. That's not your responsibility. But he is saying to them, and he says to us, it is your responsibility to judge those within the church. It's everybody's responsibility to take action in his own life, to keep away from Christians who make chronic choices to lifestyles of sin. The hard side of holiness is just this. Be careful with whom you associate. Now we have to throw up some cautions at this point, lest it be misunderstood. God has not called us to be censorious or judgmental of other people, <clears throat> a spirit of pride or arrogance. God has not either called us to be careless about this. There's a balance. And when we see a brother who is making sinful choices, we're to go to that brother and seek to restore him. But if that brother continues to make those choices time after time, and there's a lifestyle this way, 
then we're not to associate with them any longer. I think we should always do this also after having examined ourselves first, right? To make sure we get what's in our own eye out before we go to our brother and deal with him. <clears throat> God's disposition is to bless his family, but he demands holiness as a condition. This is the hard side of holiness. But it's not all that Paul wants to say about it. There's another issue. And we find it beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6. It says, If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge uh, trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. <clears throat> Let me summarize this paragraph this way. The hard side of holiness means to be agreeable to settle disputes in God's family, within God's family. Now Paul introduced the subject of judging in chapter 5, verse 12. And so now he goes on to an actual problem that was in Corinth. This is not hypothetical. Believers were suing one another in Corinth. The problem was that God's children were seeking legal remedy for what was apparently petty offenses. They were bringing these things to a civil court. These are not criminal things now. These are civil offenses that had taken place. <clears throat> and they're bringing these things to the world's legal system. These are not spiritual issues. These are material issues of some sort. Paul calls them the things pertaining to this life. The word is pragma, where we get our word pragmatics. He's thinking about practical, petty, financial kinds of things that had happened between believers. When Paul says this, he's not belittling civil courts. There is certainly a place for them. He's not disrespecting them. But he is saying that believers ought to settle agreeably between themselves and, if necessary, let the church participate in coming to that agreement. Someone may say, well, so what? So what if another believer takes a man to court, takes a brother to court? Paul says there are four consequences of that. First of all, it degrades your testimony. It degrades your testimony. Verse 1, verse 6. It says, imagine how unbelievers will interpret your actions. It degrades your testimony among the pagans. Number two, it really exposes your greed, he says. 
You're cheating and doing wrong. The word cheat there means to take unfair financial advantage of another person. This was far more about money than it was justice. <clears throat> I have known believers who have been of this mindset, not necessarily against other believers, but every little chance they got, they sued, looking for thousands of dollars to be given to them by an insurance company or someone else. <clears throat> Jesus said, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. The very same word that Paul uses here. Do not cheat others financially. Number three, it dishonored their position. He says, look, Corinthians, you have been seated with Jesus Christ. You are someday going to judge the world. Now we have other texts in Scripture where <clears throat> this is said that we're going to sit with Christ on thrones and participate in his judgment of the world. But he also says, you're going to judge angels. This is the only reference that I know of to this in the, in the Bible. Is he talking about holy angels who are going to be rewarded for service? Is he talking about judgment of demonic spirits? Don't know. But he does say, you are seated with Jesus Christ and someday you're even going to judge angels. Can't you take care of petty things among yourselves? If you've been appointed to that kind of judgment eschatologically in the future, can't you handle the pragmatics of life right now among yourselves? You're dishonoring your position, he says, by doing this. Thirdly, he says, it defeats your case anyway. He says, as soon as you go to court... You're already defeated. There are no losers. No winners, rather. You're all losers. Losers of respect, losers of fellowship, losers of your testimony among the pagans. <clears throat> and so Paul gives them a proposal. It's an alternative way of dealing with it. He says, first of all, he says, settle these things with arbitration among yourselves. Verse 5, the last part of the verse. In fact, he even uses a bit of sarcasm here. He says, find even somebody who doesn't know very much in the church. He should be qualified to settle these kinds of things. Settle it with arbitration. Find somebody to judge between you instead of taking it to the civil courts. And then he says, this is the hard side of holiness, remember. Suffer loss if necessary. <clears throat> Now, Paul is not suggesting that there be some kind of a separate court system set up here. He's saying that the court should appoint mediators. And when the decision is rendered, it's better to experience loss on your part, if need be, so that harmony is maintained in the church and Christ's testimony is maintained in the world. Now, the basic problem here is that they were demanding their own rights rather than yielding them up to God. Do you ever struggle with that? I do. I want what I want. I want justice for how I've been offended. 
<clears throat> I want my case to win. Paul says, you, you can't approach holiness that way. You need to yield your rights up to God. Now this all raises a question. It's a question I've been asked a number of times. I'm sure, Dave, you've been asked this question. And, and we've all faced it in our own thought process when we come to this text. Is it always wrong for a believer to go to court? Is it always wrong for a believer to go to court? Chuck Swindoll has four guidelines to help us with this question. The answer basically is no, it's not always wrong. I've heard people say that. I disagree with it. I respect their, their right to uh, their opinion. But I think Swindoll helps us here by giving us four guidelines that we need to think through before we would go to court. Number one, here's a guideline. When the dispute with a fellow Christian is not related to the local church. In other words, <clears throat> if it's a believer who lives in another city or goes to another church, it's not easy for one church. Now, maybe the two churches can work together to bring arbitration. But that may open the door for the necessity of a lawsuit. Secondly, when the motive is not pride or greed, but justice. We have to really check our hearts on this. It's easy to deceive ourselves. Third guideline, when the issue does not bring shame to the church of Jesus Christ in the eyes of the world. And fourth, when you're absolutely confident that it is the will of God and have complete peace in the inner person. <clears throat> so if you can pass those guidelines, you may choose to proceed. That's what Swindoll is saying. And I think essentially he's right. But the hard side of holiness is this. Settle disputes whenever possible outside of court, even if it means loss. It's not easy, especially if you're the loser. But Paul's not finished. He wants to go on and talk more about the hard side of holiness. He says in verse 9, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, he says. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Strong, strong verses. And he says, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Here's how I would summarize this text. <clears throat> Be mindful of the kingdom to which you belong. We live in a world in which there are two kingdoms that are at work, opposing each other. The kingdom of darkness that controls the world system, and the kingdom of God. Those who are belong to God's kingdom are called out of the kingdom of darkness to a lifestyle of distinction and holiness. 
God calls us to live differently than our culture. And in these verses, he, he, he brings about a contrast. Do you notice that? He talks first about the lifestyle of one who is in the kingdom of darkness. These are those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. They're lost. Now, they may get saved. But up to this point, these are the lifestyles of those who are not in salvation. They're not in God's kingdom. And he gives us a specific list. Do you notice it? If you compare this list with the one earlier in chapter 5, you'll notice some overlap. There are four additional ones that he adds to this list. Specifically, he says, adultery, which is a form of sexual immorality, but Paul nails it. He calls it out, and he, uh, he, he specifies it. <clears throat> he mentions male prostitution, which was very common in the city of Corinth, and particularly related to the worship of their gods. He speaks about homosexual behavior, whether it be male or female, very common in the Roman Empire. I read somewhere this week that all but one of the Roman emperors practiced homosexuality. That was Rome. Paul says that's the lifestyle of someone who is in the kingdom of darkness. And then he talks about theft. Have you ever heard of kleptomaniacs? A kleptomaniac is someone who is unable to control himself from stealing. <clears throat> we get our word kleptomaniac from this Greek word, klepti. It's those who steal by trick rather than by force. So Paul outlines the kinds of lifestyles that belong to the world out of which God has called us. And now he gives, in contrast, the transformation of one who is in the kingdom of God. He says, some of you were these very things. And I think we would all have to say, if we're honest, and we ought to be honest, that we're somewhere in that group. If not in thought, indeed. We can say we were some of these things ourselves. But Paul goes on to say you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Anybody want to say amen to that? Amen. God has washed us completely. He's cleansed us from the defilement of past lifestyle. It no longer is a stain on us. He says, you were sanctified. God set you apart. He made you holy. You were justified. God declared you now through Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross to be righteous in His sight. He has cleared you legally before the law. Now, it's very clear from the text that all this was true about the Corinthians as it is true about us in the family of God today. <clears throat> We still struggle with what was our past, just like they did. Some of them were beginning to fall back into the shadows of what they had been saved out of. You see, the past patterns that were cleansed of, the guilt of them, those patterns are still imprinted on us. 
And so God takes us through a process of cleansing and of holiness. He makes us new people. He transforms us little by little over time. There's an old hymn that we used to sing, I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day. The point is that the journey that we're on as God's family is a journey toward the goal of perfection. But we aren't there yet. Just like the Corinthians. And that's why he has to write this to all of us. And he says, look, your father is holy. Please remember, he's called you to be in the world without being like the world. Here's what the world is like. God set you apart for something better. <laughs> He's destined you for the throne of Jesus Christ. He wants to, to clean up your life now so you can get out of those dark patterns from the past. He wants to continue and make you a new person so that day by day, little by little, you're growing toward the goal. That's what God wants from us. I close with the statement that you see at the bottom. Our Father calls me as, his, as a child in his family to come out of the world so that I can go back to the dark kingdom as his light. Would you say that with me together? Our Father calls me as a child in his family to come out of the world so that I can go back to the dark kingdom as his light. If we don't come out, we can't go back. If we're not becoming light in the Lord, we can't be light in a dark kingdom. And so God calls us to holiness. God calls us to change. God calls us to transformation. <clears throat> and it's a wonderful process. It's a wonderful thing. Are you on that journey? I hope you are. If you are still a part of a lifestyle that God condemns, and you've never confessed that to the Lord, would you bring it to Him today? And say, Jesus, you know what I am. You know the pattern of my life. You know the lifestyle I've lived. But I, I come to you confessing that. And I receive you as my Lord and Savior. You know what? At that moment, you'll be washed. You'll be sanctified by Jesus Christ. You'll be justified in the eyes of God. And he will begin working in your life to make you a new creature. And if you did that some years ago, forsake the shadows. Turn your back on them and keep walking with him. Let's pray together. Father, I pray the holiness of life, cleanness of life, Christ-likeness of life will be something that each of us in your family will reflect a little more every day. And when we stumble and we fall backwards, as we all do, Lord, give us quick confession of that. Don't let us walk on in darkness, but bring us to the point of confession so that we can come back and walk with you and know greater holiness. Lord, we cry out to you for holiness in our lives this day. Let's stand together, please, and let's sing this song together.